Let me make a statement here. Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for everything. Hmm. Now, much of the church has given up Genesis 1 to 11. Many of our church leaders have. You believe in evolution. doesn't matter. Give up Genesis 1 to 11. What does Genesis 1 to 11 matter? Okay, let me ask a question. If you want to deal with the issue of marriage, where's the origin of marriage? Well, it's in Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11. Where's the origin of sin? Well, it's Genesis 1 to 11. Where's the origin of death? Genesis 1 to 11. The origin of clothing? Genesis 1 to 11. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Genesis 1 to 11. Why is he called the last Adam? Genesis 1 to 11. Why do we need a new heavens and new earth? Genesis 1 to 11. Why does man have dominion? Genesis 1 to 11. Why is there a doctrine of work? Genesis 1 to 11. I mean, do you think Genesis 1 to 11 is important? I barely missed the cut. No, that's a really good, you know, that's a really good point. Actually, I've heard somebody describe it like this, which is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is everything you need to know, everything after that almost commentary on it. And while that's not entirely true, I think that the hyperbole is used to make the point that everything after that alludes back to those first few chapters, right? It, it does. But it's even more than that, I would say. I would say this. Most people don't understand worldview, right? What is worldview? Worldview is your way of thinking. Yeah. And ultimately, there's only two foundations for your worldview. You either start from God's Word or you start from man's Word. Ray Comfort is bursting at the seams to share something extraordinarily exciting. But before that, I have something more important and more exciting to share. And that is that Ray and I have decided to step away from ministry and to start a new company called Air of Alps, where we're going to be selling bottled air. And this was sparked by Ray recently texting me and saying that he wondered how much used air he breathed. Ray, thank you, because that will forever change the direction of our lives. Well, it's disgusting thinking of 7 billion people breathing in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. In and out? Yeah, and we're all breathing what they got rid of because they don't want it anymore. (laughs) Did that thought just hit your head, Yes, I thought it was very strange. And then I envisioned someone up in the Alps with bottles running around trying to capture air, put the cap on before it escapes. Easy comfort air. Oh, that's even better than air of Alps. So, Ray, indulge us. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to confess something that only half the audience will identify with, but I talk to my dog. And dog lovers know that you can talk to dogs, and dogs actually talk back to you. They tell you when there's someone at the door. They tell you when they want to eat. They tell you all sorts of things. Anyway, when we're leaving every day to go out witnessing on the bike, I put the sunglasses on Sam, and I say to him, and this is serious, I say, today you might see a cat. <laughs> and then I say, uh, and I'm praying that God will prepare somebody's heart. And it just makes me smile because I see his eyes light up and I'm praying at the same time. We're having sort of fellowship. Anyway, riding through Sarita's the other last week and I saw what I thought were two cats walking along behind bushes. So I stopped because I want to give Sam a thrill. I went up to the phone. It was two skunks. <laughs> oh. Stop it. <laughs> I've got footage of it. Yeah, I'm giving it to Eddie for a television program. But they're two skunks and they were young, just young skunks. And one of them, because you've got to remember, I'm from New Zealand and I'm fascinated by squirrels because we don't have squirrels in New Zealand. Every time I see a squirrel, I get a buzz. When I see the Hollywood sign, I get a buzz. When I see New York skyline, I get still get a buzz after still living right. here. Still, I just time. find America very exciting. And the fact that you've got all these amazing animals. So when I saw these skunks, which we don't have in New Zealand, except maybe politicians, 
I, I take that back, I'm sorry. I was absolutely thrilled. I went running up really close to them, and one of them even lifted its tail up really high. To wave and at you? Oh. Yes, it was waving like did a you, dog. Did you, yeah, was, did you scream out, let us spray? No, let us spray. <laughs> anyway, I went back to Sam and I said, uh, no, they're not cats, they're just skunks, and he's a little disappointed. But it reminded me of years ago, this is before I even met you guys, I used to have a stuffed skunk. It was realistic. Wait, do I remember that? I think you I think may I, remember I, it. Yeah, I think I do remember that. So, if anyone out there, I'll try to get another <laughs> one. I don't know where the skunk went to. My wife probably hid it or something. I don't know, but I lost it. If anyone's got a stuffed skunk, I'd buy it off them. But I used to love taking it up behind someone who's sitting at a computer and just putting it by them. And they'd think, and when they saw it, they freaked out. Was it like taxidermy? I remember that. Yeah, it was a taxidermy. It was a taxidermy. No, no, no. It's not taxidermy's. Taxidermy is when it was a real skunk. It was a real skunk that had been died and died and been stuffed. Oh, seriously? I'm serious. That's why it was so good. Oh. And it freaked people out because it would just sit by their seats. Oh, I thought it was a fake stuff. No, no. I remember seeing it. Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, it was terrific. I just well, it. there was wasn't it? Uh, was it Pepe Le Pew that was always falling in love with a skunk with a cat that was painted like a skunk or something? This reminds me of the cologne company that I started and felt miserably <laughs> called Skunked. I don't know why I couldn't get that off the ground. <laughs> oh man, fun stuff, you guys. Well, talking about fun stuff, Oscar, you guys were at NRB. And you hammed it up <laughs> with Ken Ham. Yeah, we were blessed. We looked over and there was this giant monolithic island on display for uh, the Ark Encounter, which, of course, we've all been to. It's an incredible oh, yeah. experience. And there, sitting in the middle, was a lonely Australian gentleman who was just looking to make fun of any New Zealander that passed by. <laughs> but unfortunately, there was none. But yeah, we, we got to sit down with Ken Ham for about a 30, 40 minute interview and talk about what he's working on and, and the, the aspects of scripture that he's most passionate about. And as you guys know, Ken is a dear brother of ours, uh, a very sweet man, passionate about the gospel. I don't think you'd call him sweet. Sorry, I meant... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ray and Ken don't have a sweet relationship. <laughs> Ray, real quick on that note, before I let you finish, Oscar. What, what is it, this dynamic with you and Ken Ham and the constant jabbing? I mean, we, we grew, we've talked about it. We group text almost every day. And there's a buzz you guys get out of harassing each other. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's maybe similar to a skunk relation, but I don't, <laughs> I right? No, I'm it's, just. Isn't that a part of like New Zealand Australian culture? Yeah, it though? is. I think Ken, in the beginning of the interview, explains that. But Australians, because of their criminal background, they haven't got any <laughs> idea. Haven't got any idea how to express love. But if they hit you on the back and say "I love you," they've got to follow up with "Even if you are an idiot." Yeah, because that kind of saves the pride, I guess. Yeah. So Ken is, just loves me so much, and I'm getting insults. Yeah, the day. more he insults you, the more he loves you is what it is. But Mark, we were recently at the Ark, and, and how amazing. I mean, it really is a testament to that ministry's vision, the vision of their leadership and the stuff they're doing. Boy, and what's to come, right? I mean, if, if, if the greatest things are on the horizon then what is being cooped up inside the mind of all of those people that are over there? Had a chance to see uh, Georgia Purdom. She's so amazing. Follow her on social media. Just, I think, the think tanks that come so out of that she? place. She works with uh, Answers in Genesis over at She's the Creation Museum. She's she? a scientist. She's brilliant. Well, scientist. Scientist, yes. We did an event with AIG Europe recently 
there in Europe in conjunction with our Living Waters Europe with John Harris. Yeah. And I love so, the text you sent me with a it's the highlight of my life seeing Anita do a lamb noise. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, that right. was just else. amazing. For those of you that don't know, Anita used to work with us and she is able to mimic the sound of a lamb. And there's nothing like it out and there. Ben it's Price. Really, Ben Price tried to do it and he couldn't. He says, I can't get near that. It was yeah, so Ben realistic. Price, he's a professional impersonator yeah. or yeah. impressionist. Yeah, that, that, that's mind-blowing. It's otherworldly. But yeah, so Oscar, you guys are connected and uh, we're going to play that interview for our friends. I bet it was a lot of fun. You had Eddie with you. We did. Eddie Roman, one of our producers, directors for uh, Way of the Master. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys are blessed by the interview. Uh, it's a great conversation to, to learn more about what they're working on and how to defend the faith by Ken Ham. Yeah. All right, friends. Here it is. The interview by Oscar Navarro, Eddie Roman with Ken Ham. Stop. No. Yeah, I've got Anita here. I'm just waiting to catch you. Oh, you want to play it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where is it? I'm very close we'll to it. We'll have to do it in another one, Ray. No, no. Here it is here. Oh, you found it. Let's see. Come on. <laughs> What's wrong with it? Be patient. <laughs> Put it up to your mic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that Mark asks her how. She doesn't respond. She just gives him another yeah. <laughs> no, that, that, was, that was Mark's impression of an Indian. Too, I was going to say that. <laughs> how could you steal my thunder? So she does a lamb. Mark does an Indian. How, how? <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends. As we said, here it is. The interview with Oscar Navarro, Eddie Roman, and Ken Ham. All right, and we're back at the NRB conference, which is why we hear so much noise in the background. I've got, again, Eddie Roman, our producer, and Town Goof Off, right? That's me. With us also is Ken Ham, the arch nemesis of Ray Comfort. Ken, thanks for joining us. Hey, if Ray was here, you'd have a lot more noise to contend with. <laughs> noise we don't want to hear. Actually, that leads me to my first question, okay. which is written by one of our listeners by the name of Ray C., he says, why are you so mean to me? I know I'm short, but do I really deserve it? Well, see, one of the things you have to understand is that Australians insult friends. <laughs> I mean, if you're not insulted by an Australian, then they don't like you. So you I try to... You really like Ray I, a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I really do like Ray. I try to insult him on the hour, every hour, every day. I mean, we need to tell the truth here. If I haven't texted Ray to insult him, do you know what happens? What? He actually texts me and says, <laughs> I need an too. insult. I feel, I feel depressed He's today. feeling unloved? Yeah, I'm feeling unloved. Send me an insult. So, and it's true because I've seen the text thread and it regularly, just uh, like out of nowhere, an insult will, will pop onto his phone. So it comes automatic words, from me because I'm an Australian. Yeah. So in other words, if you ever run into Ken Ham out on the street and he's really nice to you, take offense. That's a problem. Is what you're saying. Yeah, that, yeah. that's true. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Ken, you do so much work on the subject of evolution, and we actually covered this in a recent podcast. One of the questions that was asked was, so what if I am a Christian and I believe in evolution? What's the problem? We love to give things away. We love to give things away. And that's why we will do that every single day here on the Living Waters Podcast. That's right, friends. We're giving away goodies. 
days for those of you who go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form. We are giving 10, believe it or not, 10 different people each week goodies from Living Waters, $100 value for each box. You'll get tracts and books and a podcast mug and all kinds of good things. So make sure to participate at livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. And make sure to listen to the very end of the podcast where you will hear the announcement of the winners every week. Okay, so as a Christian, what I would say to you is, okay, how do you know what you should believe as a Christian? Where do you get the message of the gospel from? It all comes from the word of God, right? And so one of the things that we have to be careful of as Christians is that we take God at his word. You know, when it comes to the whole issue of evolution, millions of years, people say, why, why are you so involved in that? Why do you deal with that? Because what we're dealing with here is an attack on the authority of the Word of God. Because when somebody says, what does it matter if God used evolution? Well, you could say that about anything uh, in regard to God. What does it matter if God did this or didn't do that? See, it's, it's, it's a matter of what does God say he did? And one of the problems that we see all the way through Scripture is there's a, there's a message for us from God, and it's stop trusting in man, hmm. right? And one of the things you notice with, uh, say, the Israelites, you know, if you read the prophets, what was one of the problems? Well, they would take the pagan religion of the age, compromise it with God's word. So once you compromise it with God's word, what happens? It, it was destroying them, and God judged them for it. And so what is evolution? First of all, evolution, Darwinian evolution, is really the pagan religion of the age to, in an attempt to try to explain life without God. If you read Darwin's own writings and his letters and so on, what he was trying to do is come up with a, a way of explaining everything by natural processes, by naturalism. Naturalism is atheism. Now, if you as a Christian take man's worldview of naturalism, atheism, the pagan religion, because Everyone has a worldview, so everyone has a religion. That's what we've got to understand. But you take that religion and you take it to the Bible and then reinterpret the Bible. What you've done is unlock this door to undermine the authority of the Word of God. Now, you as a Christian, you know, I've had, for instance, let's take the gap theory. I had a lady who believed the gap theory and she said, well, I believe the gap theory. I believe in millions of years. The gap theory is this idea of fitting millions of years in between verse 1 and verse 2 of, of Genesis 1. And she said, but it hasn't affected my salvation. You know, I'm a Christian. I know I'm born again. I know I'm going to heaven. What does it matter? And I said, it doesn't affect you per se as a Christian, but what it does affect is how those who you influence and impact view Scripture itself. And what we've got to look at is there's been a generational uh, loss of people believing in the authority of the Word of God. And it's really in our era related to the fact, and I'd say our era began in the 1800s when the idea of millions of years was popularized by atheists and deists who want to explain everything by natural processes. And what happened? There were Christian leaders that said, we'll take the millions of years and put in a gap in Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, or we'll put in the days of creation. Along comes Darwinian evolution. Okay, we'll take that and say God used evolution. Along comes the Big Bang. Well, we'll say that God used the Big Bang. And before long, you've got all these different positions in the church, you know, theistic evolution, progressive creation, local flood, day-age theory, framework hypothesis. I mean, there's, there's a lot of these positions. 
And all those positions have one thing in common. It's trying to fit man's view of origins, and particularly the millions of years, into the Bible. Now, what happens is when you do that, you think about it as you're raising up generations and you've told them you can believe what you're taught in the public schools, whatever, at evolution, that's okay. You can just reinterpret Genesis, just trust in Jesus. What happens is as that door is unlocked that you don't take God's word as written here and you can take man's ideas outside of scripture and reinterpret it, why should they stop there? Why not let's take man's view of marriage now and reinterpret that? That's good. Uh, let's take man's view in regard to abortion and and add that into scripture. And, and so what we've seen is generations of kids that increasingly are walking away from the church. They have a secular worldview, 85%, 90% of kids from church homes go to the public schools. A lot of our Christian leaders have said, what you're learning there about evolution, you can believe. Genesis is not important. It doesn't matter. Trust in Jesus. But they start to recognize if the first part is not true, why should the rest be true? And if you've unlocked that door, you can take man's ideas and reinterpret scripture here. Why not do it elsewhere? And we have got to come to the grips with the fact that if you get rid of Genesis 1 to 11, it's like taking the foundation out of a house. Because let me make a statement here. Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for everything. Hmm. Now, much of the church has given up Genesis 1 to 11. Many of our church leaders have. You believe in evolution, doesn't matter. Give up Genesis 1 to 11. What does Genesis 1 to 11 matter? Okay, let me ask a question. If you want to deal with the issue of marriage, where's the origin of marriage? Well, it's in Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11. Where's the origin of sin? Well, it's Genesis 1 to 11. Where's the origin of death? Genesis 1 to 11. The origin of clothing? Genesis 1 to 11. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Genesis 1 to 11. Why is he called the last Adam? Genesis 1 to 11. Why do we need a new heavens and new earth? Genesis 1 to 11. Why does man have dominion? Genesis 1 to 11. Why is there a doctrine of work? Genesis 1 to 11. I mean, do you think Genesis 1 to 11 is important? Man, I barely missed the cut. (laughs) No, that's a really good, you know, that's a really good point. Actually, I've heard somebody describe it like this, which is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is everything you need to know, everything after that almost commentary on it. And while that's not entirely true, I think that the hyperbole is used to make the point that everything after that alludes back to those first few chapters, right? It, it does. But it's even more than that, I would say. I would say this. Most people don't understand worldview, right? What is worldview? Worldview is your way of thinking. Yeah. And ultimately, there's only two foundations for your worldview. You either start from God's word or you start from man's word. See, I, I like to put things in terms of, of, of practical examples so people understand. What's one of the big questions that, that young people ask today and, and a lot of people have struggle with? How can you believe in a loving God with all this death and suffering in the world? Okay. Yet you pick up a lot of the children's books that we use with our kids and Sunday school materials, and they'll say things like this. Kids, can't you see God made this beautiful world? We live in a beautiful world. You know, obviously there's a God. They look out there and they see an ugly world. It is not a beautiful world, it's an ugly world. You see, what we haven't taught them is, this is not the world as God made it. God didn't make this world as it is. He made the original world, which is suffering from sin, the curse, the judgment of death, Now we're living in a fallen world. So you're not looking at the world as God made it. It's the same problem when it comes to, you know, well, God made this little dog. Mm -hmm. God made the poodle. You know, I I mean, or look at Ray Comfort's dog. God made that dog. I'd rather not. Well, uh, (laughs) the thing is, God actually made the original dog kind, of which that dog is a descendant. A fallen version. Are you saying Ray's dog is a fallen version? It's a fallen version, (laughs) yes. In, in In fact, if you think about it, 
the domestic dogs we have today, if, if you think about our what we've done with our, our domestic varieties, we have decided which one breeds with which, and we want to eliminate variability to concentrate, you know, oh, this one has a short nose, let's get another one with a short nose, we just get rid of all our long nose genes and so on, and you're concentrating those, but because we live in a fallen world, you concentrate mistakes at the same time. Yeah. So really, if you wanted a definition of raised dog, it would be... <laughs> A correct, a, mistake. a correct definition theologically and scientifically would be it is a sin-cursed, degenerate, mutated copy of the original, <laughs> once very good dog that God made that is suffering from the effects of sin to become the fallen, degenerate mutant that it is today. <laughs> I, I mean, thought that about that, dogs. that would be Amazing. the correct definition. And, and that's exactly his name, but just for short, we say Sam. <laughs> <laughs> so there wow, well, but so the point the point I'm making is when you start from Genesis 1 to 11, you have the account of a perfect creation marred by sin, death as a consequence of the promise of the Savior, the flood of Noah's day, the Tower of Babel. Now, that's Genesis 1 to 11. That's a foundation for everything. So once you understand the history God has revealed to us, because we live in the present, but once you understand that they're the major events of history that enable us to look at the world, oh, death and suffering, that's because we sinned in Adam, there's death, Oh, there's fossils all over the world. Well, there was a global flood, the flood of Noah's day. Well, look at all these different people groups. You know, yeah, they go back to the Tower of Babel, back to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, back to Noah, back to Adam. There's only one race; they're not different races. Oh, well, well, how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? Well, he didn't put all the species we have today. Those species have developed since the flood. He put the kinds on the ark, and and the dog kind develop into the different species that we have today. And so. Today, all your species, dingoes, wolves, coyotes, jackal, pendant, fox, collie, whatever they are, they're all part of the dog kind. All God needed to do was have Noah take two of the dog kind on the ark, and because of the genetic diversity after the flood, as they move away from each other, depending on which mates with which, which survives, you'll get your different species. So if you start from Genesis 1 to 11, you then have the basis to say, I know how to think correctly right. about this world, and it's also the foundation for all of our doctrines, marriage, right. everything. Everything. Yeah, I love the way you put that because you're absolutely right. We can look at the first few chapters of the Bible and often what we talk about is the timetable, which is really important. You guys have done a, a, an incredible amount of work on that. But one of the things that we can't miss, I think is what you're saying, is ultimately you don't want to miss the forest for the trees, right? Ultimately what we have, what creation, the story of creation is trying to tell us is who created the world or I should say, who created, what did he create, answer everything, and why. And with those three, what we come to is a Christian worldview that we need to make sure that we pass down from one generation to the next. And, and by the way, I'd say one more thing there too. And that is, a lot of times I hear some of these liberals saying, you know, Genesis just tells you who created. It doesn't tell you how he created. Sure. But it does tell you how he created. And God said. Yeah. It tells you how he, he created. And then it gives you very specifics about what he created. You know, so there's a lot of detail in there for us. So it's not just about, well, God created and that's it. In fact, you know the number of times I have people tell me, some of these theologians that say, look, the most important thing about Genesis, you don't take it literally, as long as we believe God created everything. And I'll say to them, so you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? And I'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, you just took that literally. Now, do we take the next verse literally like that or do we not? I mean, That's where good. do you draw the line and why? Yeah. And what, do you get up to Abraham 
you know, do you get up to Genesis 12 and you start saying it's history from then on? What about the fact Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew 19, when asked about marriage, quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 right there in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 yeah. as a basis for marriage, you know? So the details of history in Genesis God gives us because that's the foundation for the rest of the Bible for everything. One of the big claims against Christianity today is that we are anti-science, that evangelicalism is anti-science. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, I really responded to that in 2014 when I debated Bill Nye at the Creation Museum. And Is that as, the science guy? As Bill Nye, the atheist guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's why people need to define their terms, Okay. So when somebody says science, okay, what do we mean by science? Because the word science just means knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is people have been brainwashed, they've been indoctrinated. I find this for even many of the academics in our Christian colleges and seminaries and so on, because the word science is used for developing technology, using your five senses in the present. But the word science is also used by evolutionists to talk about evolution of millions of years. But there's a big distinction between your beliefs about origins when you weren't there and you can't repeat it, you can't see it happening, and your technology you're developing from processes you see and can repeat. And so that's why at the Bill Nye debate, I divided the word science into operational or observational science, which involves using your five senses in the present to develop technology and so on. And creationists all believe in that. But then there's historical science or knowledge concerning the past when you weren't there that's where the difference is. That's, mm. that's where we do not agree because we call that historical science. And so Bill Nye and I had a different historical science, but yet we would have the same observational science. That's good. And what's happening today is the secularists will use the one word science for evolution millions of years and science for technology. And mm. people think, oh, if I don't believe what they're saying about millions of years and evolution, then what's going to happen is I'm, I'm undermining science and I'm against science. Well, no, no. You, you've got to understand origins. That's very different to the science that develops our technology. And so people have to understand the difference there. So it's not the Bible versus science mm -hmm. at, uh, at all. The Bible has a count of origins that God's given to us. And I would say that that's God's historical science, if you like. So it's God's historical science versus man's historical science. That's, that's really what it's all about. And uh, we have to understand that um, God has revealed to us, God who knows everything who was there, has revealed to us what he did and what has happened to enable us to have a foundation for our doctrine and, and our worldview. And when you take man's view of origins and then add that to the Bible, you are undermining the authority of the word and you're taking away the foundation for all of our doctrine. Yeah, that's good. I, I, would, I would add to that by saying that uh, by no means is Christianity anti-science. You've got uh, Augustine as one of the primary examples in which he said God has revealed himself in two primary ways, first through the scriptures and then through creation. And really the earliest scientists, they all came from a biblical worldview in which they said to themselves, Everything around me has been created. And so like a reverse engineer, I can look at God's creation, understand how he created the process in which he took to create that. And that was the birth of science. And so I love the way you started with worldview, because that, again, is the issue, is that when we approach science, 
which is really just think of it as like a measuring rod. It's how we measure and understand God's creation. But when we approach it with a wrong worldview, we're going to end with a wrong conclusion. When we approach it with a biblical worldview, we're going to end by glorifying God and better understanding his creation in the world around us. That's such an important point just on a practical level because I can't remember, I can't count the times where I've been talking to someone and just right off the bat, they try to end the conversation with saying, well, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, you know? So just understanding the, t- the two different kinds of distinctions, that's such an important thing. Oh, yeah, and you've got to challenge them on that. You yeah. know, what do you mean by science? See, that, that, a lot of times people get intimidated by what's said. We need to challenge them and challenge their definitions. Mm-hmm. Even when it comes to evolution, what do you mean by evolution? Because there's evolutionary geology, biology, astronomy, anthropology. What are you talking about? Because evolution per se is really naturalism. Naturalism is really atheism. And secularists have, have tried to come up with ways of explaining everything by natural processes. But therein, therein lies a major problem. It's a problem that Bill and I had. And uh, that was one of the things that I, I challenged him on too, because we're talking about worldview, right? People don't realize this. When non-Christians actually have to borrow from a Christian worldview to even talk logically Absolutely. about things. Because you think about the laws of nature, right? They're immaterial, right? Where right. are they? And yet, you know, we have the law of, the laws of mathematics blindly. and the laws of physics and so on. Where'd they come from? Yeah. If you believe in an evolutionary view of origins that everything happens by natural processes, how do you know you can trust them tomorrow? Right. And that actually is what I call, as a former atheist, looking back at the many years that I spent thinking and reading in that kind of way, I realized that that is actually this, the, the atheist God of the gaps uh-huh. because they look at, they look at the laws of, of creation and they go, I don't know, they're just there. They can't, right? We look at it as the hand of God right. holding together everything, them. right? But they look at it as, as they're, they're really doing the same thing of God of the gaps that they claim that we are doing by saying, I, I don't know, we just have to accept that as fact. Well, it's, it's like Bill Nye was asked a question. It was a 10-year-old boy that wrote it down, and it was, where did matter come from? And he said, I don't know, it's a great mystery. The funny thing is, I'll find these atheists that will mock at us for believing in eternal, intelligent, creator God, and yet, what do they believe? Eternal right. matter, eternal energy. I mean, where did it all come from? Yeah, it Why does it even? Nothing, right? Why does anything even exist? I mean, how do they explain that? It just came from nowhere for no reason. Why did did that? How do you explain? I mean, they are yeah. totally bankrupt. And now, it. and there goes so far as as to pull out string theory or the multiverse that it all of a sudden bubbled into existence from a different universe, which we have absolutely zero scientific evidence, absolutely theoretical. But they'd rather believe that then accept the reality that God spoke and all of creation came to be. And they'd rather believe in aliens out there too. Right, I, right. A lot of them will do. They'll, they'll say, oh, well, there was intelligent life in outer space out there and it came to Earth or something or other. And that, they'll, they'll postulate the idea of aliens and, and say that that's something that's logical and all the rest of it. They've never seen one. Yeah. But, you know, you talk about God, no, that's ridiculous. Right. So one of the why, things you why? realize is atheists don't just have a blind faith. It's a blind faith that lacks credulity. Right. That's good. Ken, why? Why do you think so many are willing to accept such extravagant and wild claims about the origins of creation over the reality that God created? Well, you know, you can't ignore man's heart. You can't ignore the spiritual aspects of this. If you go back to Genesis 3, Genesis 3 verse 1 and verse 5, because the devil came to Eve and said, did God really say? So the first attack was on the word of God, right? Mm-hmm. To get Adam and Eve 
to doubt the Word of God, that doubt would lead to unbelief. So it was an attack on the Word of God. Don't believe God's Word. Then it says, you can be like God. And so you decide truth for yourself. And we know that Adam sinned, and we and Adam sinned because we come from Adam. So really Genesis 3, 1 and 3, 5 sum up our sin nature. Our nature is we don't want to believe God. We'd rather believe man's word than God's word. We want to be our own God. We want to decide truth for ourselves, right and wrong for ourselves. And so we've got to recognize that we already have a heart that's biased against God. We don't want God. So anything that is against God will appeal to us. Anything that's the opposite of that, we will want to reject. That's our heart. That's, good. that's who we are. Yep. That's why you know the Bible makes it clear. If, you know, even Romans one. That, you know that God has made it evident to all that He's Creator. He Romans two. He's put the law in our hearts, so we know what's what's right and we know what's wrong. We have a conscience, but our nature is we go against that, and that's what you see. I see it in the church all the time. People would rather have the accolades of man than to trusting God. We would rather believe the fallible words of man and reinterpret God's word. And you see that. That's why there's so many compromised positions rife in the church. Yeah, that's good. You know, ultimately, what we realize through the scriptures, I think, well, before we go to the scriptures, we realize that in the world around us, we've been primarily told that we are thinking things, that we are thinkers more than anything else. But the scriptures show us that really we make choices based off of our desires, our loves, what our heart wants, our mind follows. And and here's the thing is that even atheists admit that that's true. My point is Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind, full-blown atheist, Harvard professor, I believe. And he admits that our hearts are more like a president that goes around loving, falling in love with certain things. And then our minds come in like a press secretary and they're there to defend the choices the heart has already made. And that's exactly what the scriptures tell us, that most people who want to deny that God created isn't, it's not an intellectual denial. It's because that they love something greater than God, either themselves, their sin, their pride, whatever the case is. And so ultimately the conversation is more about the condition of the heart than it is our ability to understand the world around us. And, you know, just saying that, when people understand that, do you realize that relates to critical race theory? Yeah. Because, In what way? Well, first of all, when people say to me, what do you think of critical race theory? I say, is it built on God's word or man's word? It's man's word, so the whole worldview is going to be wrong, right? But what are they teaching people? You judge people according to their outside. Mm. What does the Bible say? You're judged according to your inside, your heart. Once you understand what that means, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, as, as the scripture says. Once you understand the fact that it's who we are, what, what we believe, what we think, that's what's important. We need to conform our thinking to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the modern world, when you think of CRT that's permeating our schools and, and even many churches, it's really trying to get people, oh, you judge someone according to the outside. So they don't understand. It's the inside that's important. It's your inside that's what's their inside. And we, as Christians, we judge. We're to judge righteously. We have to judge ourselves in the same yeah. way that we judge others, by the same standards. So it doesn't say you shouldn't judge, but it's your heart. It's who you are because that de- determines everything. And at the, at the heart of what Karl Marx taught about the condition of man is that he said, 
the reason why people commit crimes, do errors, is because the structures and institutions around them has failed them. And so the fault is to be blamed for the structures and institutions around them, which is totally antithetical to the gospel or to the scriptures, because we know while structures can fail us and institutions can fail us, Ultimately, sin is an issue of the condition of the heart, which is something that Marx absolutely rejected. He rejected that idea entirely. Well, see, the origin of sin, Genesis. You've got to understand, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By Romans 5, by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death came upon all men. So there's the Apostle Paul talking about we are sinners going back to Genesis 1 to 11. And then what's Jeremiah 17, 9 say? The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So... What do, we, what do we see in our church today? We see a lot of the younger generation, Generation Z, who will say even things like, well, I feel if two men love each Therefore, other, they should right. to get married. We haven't taught them. You, you can't trust your feelings. Yep. You've got to judge your feelings against the absolute authority of the Word of God. But when you've told them this is not the absolute authority, you don't have to take Genesis as written. You can use man's ideas to reinterpret it. They don't understand. You can't trust your feelings. That's good. Well, I'm getting the sign that we should wrap up. Ken, thank you so much. Before we wrap up, I want to ask a quick question about what you guys are working on right now. And I want to start by telling you this. The first time that I went to the Ark, you round that hill and there's just like this gigantic monstrosity of a boat sitting there. And it really puts into perspective how large the Ark was. Was that intentional? And why do we not realize that it's so much bigger than we think. Oh, yeah, that was intentional. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Ray Comfort seeing it for the first time? <laughs> I mean, it'd be he like... He hurt his neck looking up, I heard. It'd be like a little ant down there somewhere, <laughs> you know? Well, over the years, one of the most asked questions I've ever been asked, I was first asked it in 1975, actually, when I became a school teacher, was, so how can Noah's art be true? He couldn't fit all the animals on board. And so... One of the things I realized, people didn't understand the size of the ark, and they didn't understand it was the kinds, not all the species that went on the ark. And it's important to answer those. And, you know, around the world, Noah's ark is portrayed, I mean, it's well known because of all the flood legends, but Noah's ark is is portrayed as, you know, these bathtub arcs with giraffes sticking out the chimney about to sink in any moment. And well, even, yeah, I have four and boys, even, and they all got the little kitty bugs yeah, with little cute Noah's ark, and everyone's smiling in there. All the animals are having fun in Noah's ark. And obviously, it's like, the, a, it's like a vacation, like a carnival yeah, cruise we call or something. It, we call it the bathtub ark. And obviously, you know, you couldn't fit the animals on that ark. And even many, many of our, our children's books, uh, a lot of our Sunday school material has these bathtub arcs. Churches have them on their kindergarten walls, the yeah. bathtub arcs. It's really important to understand. I mean, they may be cute, but they're dangerous because it's not a fairy tale, right? This is a real account, this is history. And so the Bible gives us the dimensions. And so when you see the actual size and you build it, it helps make it come alive. Absolutely. And when people, people come up to it, I see little kids coming up and saying, wow, I didn't realize it was so big. He could fit the animals on that one. So it really speaks to them. Yeah. You know, at the, both the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, with all the exhibits that we have, people tell us over and over again, it really helps make the Bible come alive in a very special way. Yeah. That's important. And we're, we're helping people understand this is history. This, yeah. this is real. So I haven't been there in three years, maybe, because you haven't invited me to anything, Ken, which is very offensive. There's a purpose for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's a compliment since you're not inviting friends. me anywhere. Who, who are you again? Because I could get your name and make <laughs> sure you get invited. Okay. Uh, what, could I, what new things can I expect if I showed up today? 
Oh, if you show or what you're working on. Show up today. Well, at the Creation Museum, we now have a laser projection system in our planetarium and a 4K program, just absolutely stunning. A 4D theater, we're using infrared glasses. We go through the whole Bible in 10 minutes with an animated wow. program in 4D. We put in the most powerful, fearfully and wonderfully made pro-life exhibit in the world. Wow. Um, that's at the Creation wow. Museum. And we've got lots more things coming at the Creation Museum too, the uh, projects that are underway. Then it, at the uh, Ark Encounter, we have a virtual reality experience. It's actually a virtual reality ride. You sit in the seats, you put on the virtual reality glasses, and the seats move, and you really feel like you're riding in a spacecraft back to the time of Noah's day, and then zipping around there. And, that's awesome. And uh, you experience the flood, you survive it, but you experience <laughs> oh, <that's good. laughs> it. Uh, you fly through Noah's Ark, but then you come back uh, to the present. And it's very, very popular. We've added a lot of things like that. We keep adding animals in our zoos that we have to teach from a, a perspective of, of design and biblical kinds and things like that. And we're planning a Tower of Babel for the Ark. Now, that'll be a few years down the road, but it takes a long really? time to plan that. And eventually at the Creation Museum, a Children's Museum and Discovery Center. So we're not short on vision. We have lots of things I we're working it. on. That's exciting. Well, I can't wait to get back over there when you invite me finally. You and Ray are unique in the sense that both of you are crazy and both of you seem to be able to write a book a week. In your newest book, I think this is one of your newer books, Divided Nation, Cultures in Chaos in a Conflicted Church. Ken, tell us a little bit about this book. It's really dealing with what's happening in the church, the generational loss from the church. I mean, Generation Z and millennials, you're down to just over 8% now attending church. And looking at the secularization of the culture and why did this happen? And it's really talking about failures in the church. We failed to teach apologetics, failed to teach biblical worldview based on Genesis. We failed to teach there's no such thing as neutrality. No one is neutral. Mm. Atheists are not neutral. Public education is not neutral. When you throw your God out, people think now it's neutral. No, now it's anti-God. You're either for Christ or against. And everyone has a religion. And ultimately, there's only two. You're either for Christ or against. You're either God's word or man's word. So I go through in there and say there's been failures of the church to teach these things. And so generations have been bullied by the atheists and their kids have been indoctrinated and brainwashed in the public schools. And we wonder why we're losing them. Uh, parents haven't trained their kids the way they should. So it really deals with all those issues. That's awesome. And for those of you, as we wrap up, for those of you, you might be thinking, because we've alluded to a number of times now, the idea that kids are being indoctrinated into something else. If you're wondering yourself, like, how can we disciple our kids well? One of the other books that Ken has written two weeks ago, maybe, was Creation to Babel, a commentary for families, which is a great way for you guys to lead your children through a devotional of better understanding and you know, indoctrination is not a bad word. All of us are being indoctrinated. It's the a question matter of what is, you're indoctrinated That's in. exactly right. Is it good doctrine or is it bad doctrine? And this book is a great way of applying good doctrine to your children. And you had it right the first time. It's creation of Babel. Of Babel? <laughs> that's how I've always pronounced it. I'm Australian. That's right. There you go. Uh, okay, so- <laughs> thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us on the uh, Living Waters podcast. And uh, we'll see you next time. Any last words for Ray Comfort? <laughs> uh, he needs to read my book. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Ken.
Winners, winners, winners. That's you, friends. Those of you who I'm about to announce are the winners of this week's podcast giveaway on the Living Waters podcast. We've got Carlos from Lamont, California, Daniel from Jamestown, North Carolina, Ed Washburn from Tennessee, David Norwood from North Carolina, Doug Campobello from South Carolina, Ali from Falls Church, Virginia, Adrian from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Joshua from Excelsior Springs, Missouri, Eva from Bow Island, Canada, and Penelope from Bardwell Park, Australia. Shout out to the Aussies and the Canadians out there. Friends, you can get this too, those of you who are listening. Just share the word and sign up for the Living Waters Podcast.